we're going to open the Bible now, and the question for all of us to be chewing over in the back of our minds during the reading is, I've got a clicker here somewhere. No, I don't. I've lost it. We have the next slide. Thanks, Wesley. In these verses, why are the Jewish leaders opposed to Jesus? Thank you very much. And why is Jesus opposed to them? There's quite a few answers. Why are they after him? And why is he after them in return? Um, and let's hear from Ant, who's going to give us the reading. Thank you. Uh, good morning, church. So today's reading is from John, John 10, 22 to 42. Um, it's in the church Bible's page 896. Uh, page 896. At that time, the feast of the, the, sorry. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus <coughs> was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, "How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly." Jesus answered them, "I told you." And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe me, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, a man, make yourself a God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scriptures cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent in the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing the work of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am, the, I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at the first, and then he remained. And there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed him there. Thanks, Ant. Let's pray. Father God, please would you open your word to us now. Would you quieten our hearts and our minds, help us to focus on whatever else is going on in our lives. And there are some big things in some of the lives in this room. Father, help us realize nothing is bigger than you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And Lord, give us a, a precious special time in your presence, hearing from you, not, not 
through my, because of me, but because of your scriptures. Lord, they've been changing lives around the planet and in this church for thousands of years and uh, up until today. And Lord, we want that to continue. And would it happen even in the next 20, 30 minutes? Because that's what you love to do for the sake of your glory. So, so do that among us by your word now. Amen. So, you know those, um, those word association games where you have to say the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear a particular word or phrase? I wonder what you would say when you hear the word Jesus. I wonder what pops into your head. Because this morning, the passage in front of us focuses us on what we think of him, not what we think we think of him, not what we assume we think of him. What do we really think of him? Not the right answer, the answer I give to my Christian friend. What do we really think of Jesus? And some of us have been Jesus followers for many decades here. Um, some of us only a few weeks. Some this morning would probably say, I'm not a Jesus follower. I'm not a Christian. And if that's you, you're super welcome. Glad you're here. But for each of us, whoever we are, wherever we're coming from, the passage is putting this question to us. What do you do with him? What do you think of him? How do you view him? And some of us might um, think we can write him off as an overblown historical footnote. On the other hand, others might think that we've been treating him in accordance with his true identity for decades and decades. The thing about Jesus is that he often loves to confound our assumptions and refuse to be pigeonholed. And with Jesus, there is always more. There's always more. It always goes deeper. And so let's explore that now. John 10 Verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took, case, took place in Jerusalem. Just a quick uh, history lesson, a bit of context. So AD, uh, BC 167, a brutal Syria, uh, Syrian king called Antiochus Epiphanes, I think it might have been Antiochus Epiphanes IV, to be precise, captures Jerusalem. <clears throat> it's horrific. He has no mercy and... Um, he tries to think, what is the most blasphemous possible desecration I can make against these people I've conquered, just to show them who's boss. And he um, goes into the temple, the most sacred place in the whole of Israel. He erects an altar to a false god, the god Zeus. And on that temple, he drags a big fat pig and sacrifices it. And the blood goes everywhere, and he sacrifices what's unclean to the Jews, a pig, to Zeus in the temple. And he must have felt pretty big doing that at the time. Must have felt good from his point of view. It wasn't so clever because what it did is it sparked a rebellion by a very famous Judean freedom fighter called um, Maccabees, uh, Judas Maccabees, that ended up being successful and defeating Antiochus Epiphanes. And at the end of the rebellion, they rededicated the temple. They sort of spiritually had to cleanse it from what Antiochus Epiphanes had done. They rededicated it. And the anniversary of that dedication every year became known as, verse 22, the Feast of Dedication. And here's why I, I bother going into all of that. Because that context of what we're about to read could not be more perfect and fitting. Like, as you should know by now, if you've been sitting through this series in John, everything is very, very deeply symbolic. He doesn't give us a single detail that doesn't have meaning. And nine times out of ten, kind of maybe a double meaning, triple meaning, deeper meaning. And that's the case with this being the Feast of Dedication. Because when Jesus 
came along to the temple about 200 years later, it looked like it was in good order. It looked like it was fit for purpose, enabling the people to have a relationship with God. The truth was, under the Jews, it had become completely corrupt and a complete failure. And the priests might as well have been sacrificing pigs to Zeus when Jesus rocks up at the temple. And Jesus is on, Jesus is on the scene here as the ultimate Judas Maccabees, the one who will overthrow uh, religious corruption and enable people to really have a relationship with God. And so that's why the Feast of Dedication could not be a more perfect context for what we're about to read. And Jesus knows it. That's why later in this passage, in verse 36, he, includes him, he, he uh, describes himself as being, quote, dedicated, Feast of Dedication. He's, he's saying, I'm the one dedicated to God. The, the word used in verse 36 is consecrated, different translation. So a little bit more context before we dive in. Reading on in verse 22, it was winter. Remember what I just said about everything in John being meaningful and often very symbolic? Um, well, why does John tell us it was winter? Um, just maybe, because as well as being winter seasonally, like it is for us, it was winter spiritually. Um, someone shared a prophecy with me this week about looking out and seeing a landscape that was dark and covered in winter and, and frost, but then seeing the sunrise and everything becoming warm and bright and um, spring coming and there being life. I'm not going to share what the prophecy was about in particular, um, but winter stands for things being cold and frozen and dead. And that is the spiritual climate of Jesus' context at this point. All the corruption and the bitterness and the hatred and the opposition going against towards him from the priests and the, and the Jewish leaders. It's winter. And in fact, because of all of that, he'll be dead in about four months, um, but then spring will come. But for now, it's winter. Verse 23. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Would have been a good place to conduct his teaching ministry at that time of year. Would have sheltered him from the, the cold winds um, seasonally. And then we get this conflict. As he's walking and teaching in the colonnade of Solomon, this conflict springs up between him and the Jews, as it has been more and more in John recently. And that's the rest of the passage. And the rest of the passage centers around two basic issues. Number one, Jesus' identity as the Christ. Number two, his identity as the Son of God and his divinity. So first of all, if you're making notes, which I recommend, and there are notebooks available at the back, stick a hand up if you'd like one, three quid a pop. We have Jesus is the Christ. And this is um, in verses 24 to 30. By the Christ, what we mean is, and this may or may not be one of the questions on your quiz sheets, Redeemer Juniors, Christ is God's divine eternal king prophesied for centuries and centuries, appointed by God to destroy his people's enemies and rule over them and bless them forever and ever and ever. That's what the Christ means. And like I say, this is verses 24 to 30. So reading on verse 24. So the Jews, in John's gospel, the Jews often shorthand for the Jewish leaders, the priests, uh, gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. They're saying, come out with it. Another translation from the Greek there actually puts it, how long do you intend to annoy us? The point being, that's not a genuine question. Instead, it's the question who have already made up their minds and are looking for more evidence just with which to nail down Jesus' coffin. They're looking for a fight. They're challenging him to openly come out with this blasphemy that he thinks he's the Christ, 
so they can have enough ammo to finally shut him down once and for all. And, I mean, it's true in their defense. He hasn't been coming out with it openly and publicly in the way they're talking about And that's for two reasons. Number one, if he had been, John's gospel wouldn't have a chapter 11. He'd be dead by now. But he hasn't quite yet finished his earthly ministry. There are, he's going to let them kill him soon, in about four months' time, as per God's plan all along. Just not quite yet. He still has some important things he needs to teach, like we're about to see, and he needs to do. So that's number one. And reason number two for him not openly coming out with the fact that he's the Christ yet is the truth that had he done so, all of the crowds and especially the authorities would have got completely the wrong end of the stick. Their conception of the Christ was of some political military figure to liberate Israel in the first century from the Romans. Whereas as the true biblical Christ, Jesus was in fact not some political military um, figure, but a spiritual divine figure. And, and not just to liberate Israel, but his global people. And not just in the first century, but throughout all eternity. And not just from the Romans, but from sin and Satan and death and God's judgments. And so if he had sort of gone public, as, as has already, they've already tried to do earlier, they would immediately have, have started assembling an army and building a base and strategizing and setting out raiding parties and stockpiling provisions and thinking, great, this is it. He's going to do his job, liberate us from the Romans. That wasn't his job. Much bigger fish to fry. Fish that includes us here sitting here today, 2,000 years later. But even while not announcing himself as the Christ openly, nonetheless, he had been putting it out there. Verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, I have been telling you. You just don't believe. And he's been putting it out there in two ways, his words and his works. In other, his, his works, in other words, his miracles, verse 25. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And then his words, in other words, his teaching, verse 27. My sheep hear my, my voice. So although he doesn't trumpet the fact that he's the Christ, he does let it be known to certain individuals, to those who aren't fundamentally predisposed to rejecting him and shutting him down. In other words to his sheep, to his people. And this is exactly what he goes on to explain. And in fact, you may be surprised to know, he puts that a lot better than me. So let's, let me shut up and, and let's let him put exactly this point as he wants to. The verse we're about to look at where he puts this is a classic example of him putting things exactly the other way around to how you and I would instinctively put them. And, and Jesus is the master of this, as you will have picked up in recent weeks and months in John's Gospel. Anyone know which verse I'm talking about where he puts things the exact other way around to how you and I would have? And the verse is verse 26. Now we'd expect him to say, you are not part of my flock because you don't believe. That makes sense, wouldn't it? You're not part of my flock because you don't believe. Access to God's people becomes by believing in Jesus. So you're not part of my flock because you don't believe. And that's not untrue, but look how Jesus puts it in verse 26. Here's the shock. He says, you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. The scary truth is that belief is not just the cause of salvation. Belief is at the same time the symptom of, of pre-existing salvation. 
In other words, God grants the, spiritual, the, the, the miracle of spiritual sight to see Jesus as the Christ to those who he has already marked out as being sheep of his flock from before the foundation of the world, to quote Ephesians 1. And, and I don't know how that makes you feel, but for many people, partly because of our human pride, partly because of our finite minds, we can instinctively say, but, 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 but that's, that's so unfair. How is that fair that he marked some people out and not others before the foundation of the world and it's only the people he marked out who he then enables to see Jesus as the Christ? How is that fair? They never had a chance. It's unfair on all those who haven't been predestined, to use a word the Bible uses quite a lot. And yet the Bible says the truth is it is absolutely fair. They're guilty, just like we were. They culpably reject God, those who aren't chosen before the foundation of the world, just like we culpably reject God. In that sense, in a sense, they never had a chance. But the real question is, why does God owe anyone a chance? They don't have a right to a chance, just like we don't have a right to a chance. It would be like saying, this convicted mass murderer, now our sin is infinitely worse um, than that, given how holy God is, but run with this analogy for now. This convicted mass murderer has the right to being shown mercy and acquitted. Like, no, he doesn't. So it's not unfair that God doesn't give everyone a chance. The unfair part, if there is one, is that he does give anyone a chance. And so Romans 9.14, talking about this, says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. In the Greek there is meganoito. It's as strong as you can get. It's may it never be. Don't even, don't even think for a second that God could be unfair. And the verse goes on, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He can do what he wants. He's God. And what he does is just by definition. He's not subject to some external objective uh, standard of justice. Like That doesn't exist. Whatever he does and says is the universal standard of justice, by definition. That's what it means to be God. And so one analogy that might help us a little bit would be um, this. Now, I would never, ever advocate buying a lottery ticket. And I trust the Christians among us are not. And please don't. And if you are, please stop. And if you're wondering why, come and see me afterwards. But if on the laughably infinitesimal chance that this bit of paper is worth a million pounds, which theoretically might be, let me hereby state 100% of this is going to Redeemer and other causes, 0% to me, um, wouldn't it be funny if the one ticket I buy in my entire life as an illustration for my message, God's like, yeah, okay, boom, million pounds. Um, if you hear nothing, safely assume that didn't happen. If next week we start unrolling plans for Redeemer's giant luxury jacuzzi, then you know, you'll know. Um, as Christians, it is kind of like we won the lottery. And now if someone wins the lottery, that's not unfair on the millions of people who didn't. In getting nothing, they got what they deserved, right? what, what, they, you know, what, what was expected. Um, what they, in getting nothing, they got what was reasonable. Rather, it is just a stunning, out of the blue, unexpected bonus for the one person who did win that they won. That is the situation for those of us who find that we are able to see and trust in Jesus as the Christ. We're able to. Prior, because prior to that, he chose us. We, we won the lottery. 
But of course, unlike the lottery, and this is where the analogy breaks down, it wasn't random. Verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I, I know them. This isn't random. They were not numbers to him. This is in, intensely personal. Um, he, he knew us and loved us before he chose us. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, and the connotation of the Greek word there includes the concept of love. For those whom he foreknew slash loved, he also predestined. It's very personal, not random. And that's just the corollary to Jesus' words in verse 26. This isn't me just importing lots of unbiblical Calvinist theology. Like just, just look at the verses. And, and John's gospel is one of the biggest in the whole Bible, by the way, for this doctrine of election, predestination. Um, verse 26, Jesus says, You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Equally, by definition, we could say, You Christians do believe because you're part of my flock. So two quick applications We'll just take a pause at this point. Two quick applications from this point of what Jesus is saying in verse 26. Uh, uh, two things that should change in us because of the truth that Jesus first knows and chooses his sheep, then grants them sight as to who he really is. Number one, we need to be full of humble joy and worship. And, and again, just... This may be relevant to one of the questions on your quiz sheets, juniors. But we have won not just the lottery of a lifetime or the lottery of a year. We've won the lottery of an eternity. Not just a few million pounds that won't do us any good once we're dead, shortly. But undreamed of happiness and fulfillment forever and ever and ever and ever. Instead of eternal hell. And, and we didn't in any way earn or deserve that or engineer that. God was just kind and loving and gracious and gave it to us. And so we need to be cultivating humble joy and worship. Humble because it wasn't anything to do with us. He picked us. And joy and worship because, well, <laughs> look what he's done, given to us. And that should be reflected as we sing. And if you're not, if, you're, if the music starts on a Sunday and, and you've had a tough week and you're knackered, kids have kept you up all night, and your heart just isn't really in it, just, just fight that. Um, use your body. Use your voice. And, and body language really changes the heart. It's not just the heart that affects our bodies. It's our bodies that also affect our heart. And if, if you say, no, I'm going to be passionate, then you'll find that your heart catches up. But in, in so many ways, especially singing on Sundays, we need to cultivate passionate worship and joy, and it's, it needs to be humble. That's the first thing. Our second and final application of this point is that we need to be urgently witnessing to everyone and anyone for all we're worth. If it wasn't for predestination, evangelism would be utterly pointless. Uh, if no one had been chosen by God beforehand, us trying to call people to repent and believe in Jesus would just be hot air. Be like, be like buying a lottery ticket, knowing for certain in advance that none of these were winners. That's what evangelism would be like if there wasn't any predestination. But because there are people out there scattered all over the place who God has lined up from before the beginning of time to receive that miracle of having their eyes open to the fact Jesus is the Christ, therefore our evangelism is guaranteed to work every now and again. It, it cannot fail 
when it happens to get to the person who God chose. And, and we uncover those people just by spreading the word far and wide and seeing who responds. And the really exciting thing about evangelism, something I love on Friendship Fridays is you never know who it's going to be. The most unexpected people. In the Bible, Paul, that, that Christian murdering God-hater, becomes arguably maybe the greatest Christian in, in history. And, and I could tell you so many stories in Croydon and in my life in the past, the most unexpected people happen to be those who were chosen before time. And when you witness to them, whoa, you were chosen. Wow, great, coming in. And so people might think, it's, it's kind of funny to me, people can assume that they're safe and confirmed in their atheism or their agnosticism or their humanism or their Satanism or their Hinduism or their Islam or whatever else it might be. The truth is, in a sense, no one's safe. God's love and mercy can erupt anywhere with anyone at any time. No one's safe. And so we need to be urgently witnessing. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, or even if you are, and this is making you very stressed because you're thinking, was I predestined? I, I'm powerless. It's out of my hands. Was I? I hope I was. I predestined? That's not the question to ask. The question to ask is, can you repent of your sin? Do you trust Jesus is the Christ? And if you find that you do, if you find that you can, guess what? You were predestined. That's how you're able to. Well, then Jesus goes on to lay out some features of those who do accept he's the Christ. Five in particular. Number one, they hear his voice, verse 27. Number two, he knows them, verse 27. Number three, they follow him, verse 27. Number four, they have eternal life and will never perish, verse 28. And number five, no one will snatch them out of his hand. And we thought about all of those points last week um, because Jesus mentioned them then too, except for the fifth. So we'll just spend a couple of minutes um, on this before we move on to the final point. Let me read verse 28 again. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So once someone is a true Christian, here is a list of things that are not able to separate them from Jesus. You ready? Number one, false teachers and false leaders and people in your life who are in a position of trust but are highly dangerous and will lead you astray. And that's probably the biggest example of all in this context. It's those false leaders to whom Jesus is saying this. He's saying in verse 28, no one, not even you guys, are going to snatch my people out of my hand. To that, we can add number two, our own sin and failure. That won't separate us from Jesus. He's already paid for it all. And number three, Satan, who is raging and plotting and planning to, to frustrate God's purposes and stop us getting to heaven, that won't snatch us out of Jesus' hand. As won't, number four, the demons who are active around us. Uh, five, the discouragement that can pull us down when life doesn't go to plan. Six, the anxiety or the exhaustion when we just feel overwhelmed by life, out of control. Or seven, the lack of assurance or the doubts that God really does love us, that he really will accept us, which are lies that we can tell ourselves or be, or be told by demons. And, and Paul puts this so powerfully in Romans 8. Just listen to a few of the verses from Romans 8. It's almost like a poem. He says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? Maybe someone's in distress here this morning. Or persecution or famine or nakedness. Maybe you've got nothing. Or danger or sword. No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. And Paul says, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, that's demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christian, you have to be confident. You've got to be confident. Jesus has you. No matter what's going on in your life right now, or what you've been through, or what you think may or may not be coming down the track for you, Jesus has you. One night when I was six, my little sister was four, and my parents were sitting in the kitchen downstairs. We should have been long asleep, and typically for us, we weren't. We were messing around at the top of the stairs on the banister, and there was a big drop. It was a tall house, a big drop from the banister to the, to the ground floor, and we were leaning over, and somehow my sister overbalanced and sort of managed to flip herself um, over. And as she was falling, she instinctively stuck out her hands without knowing sure what she was doing and found herself clinging to this tiny thin ledge of wood um, way above the ground floor in the hallway. And I remember us both instinctively screaming and screaming and screaming. And I asked my dad afterwards, how did you know we weren't messing around? How did you know it was a genuine emergency? And he said, because of the tone of your screaming. I, I knew that something was like an emergency. just had to get there in like one second. And he, my parents sprinted out of the kitchen around the corner. My dad sized up the situation in a millisecond. He stood below my sister and he shouted up, it's okay, you can let go. I've got you. I've got you. And, and she dropped and he had her. No matter what's going on in your life right now, maybe you're feeling like you're clinging on by your fingertips over a big drop. Jesus has you. But when Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand, that raises the question, how can we know? Uh, how is it that we're so secure in his hand? Next verse gives us the answer, verse 29. My Father, God Almighty, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. But that in turn raises the question, well, mm, this is a bit awkward. Which is it, Jesus? You just said it was your hand, now he's saying it's your Father's hand. Like, wh which? And the next verse gives us the answer to that, verse 30. See the answer? I and the Father are one. And that then kicks off the second and final point. And I mean, literally, everything really kicks off. Uh, another attempt on Jesus' life. So just before we finish by briefly looking at verses 31 to the end, here's what we've seen so far in summary. The Jews pick a fight with Jesus and ask, uh, challenge him to admit openly that he thinks he's the Christ. And his reply is, number one, I have told you the Christ, I'm the Christ through the witness of my words and my works, verse 25. Number two, you're just not able to receive it because of your fundamentally predisposed rejecting hearts, verse 26. And number three, but here are some features of those who are able to receive it and do see him as the Christ, verse 27 and 28. And then, like I say, finally, the conflict moves on to Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And this is in verses 31 to 39. And we're going to look at this uh, quite a lot more briefly, partly because lots of the themes that we've just covered reappear in these verses, which, by the way, is often how John's gospel works. It's not linear Anything like as much as, say, a, a Pauline letter would be. They fill up most of the New Testament. Um, it's often circular, um, going round and round certain themes and approaching them repeatedly but from slightly different angles. 
So we're going to be able to be more efficient. Um, picking up again from verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And it doesn't mean one, one person. The, the Greek for one there is neuter. If it was one person, the Greek would be male. But uh, one is neuter. So I and the Father are, are two separate people, two persons, but one entity. We share the same one nature. And in saying that, Jesus is deliberately echoing a very famous passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4, known as the Shema, in which it is said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's deliberately sort of quoting that about himself. And the Jews, of course, immediately realize that he's claiming to be divine, as divine as God the Father. That was blasphemy, punishable by death by stoning. Hence, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. And you can picture them in their rage, you know, hoiking up their robes, bending down, finding rocks, and, and, and getting ready to slam these rocks into Jesus' body, try and crush his skull with them. And even while they're poised, they would probably had the wind-up done. Jesus still isn't quite done. And he, he wants to play this out even a little longer. Wonder if, if you're in an argument with someone and they want to kill you and they've picked up a, a rock and they're like this, at that point, would you say, oh, just one more thing, one more point? I don't need off the drama of this. And so in verse 32, even as they're, they're, they're sort of, they've got the wind up and they're ready to slam into his body and ribs and head and, and take his life, he's like, I'm not done yet. Uh, let, let me challenge you. And he challenges them. Um, and the issue of his works, his miracles, again, comes up as evidence of his identity. Then in verse 33, the Jews make clear that their beef isn't with the fact that he's claimed, um, isn't with uh, his miracles that they can't deny. It's with the fact he's claiming to be divine. And so in verses 34 to 38, Jesus makes his argument. And without dwelling on the argument in depth, it basically boils down to this. He quotes Psalm 82, verse 6, which calls human judges gods. Kind of interesting, isn't it? I don't know if you knew the Bible referred to godly, good humans as gods. Um, but it does in Psalm 82, verse 6, and these are judges. And, and Jesus' argument is, look, if even human judges can in some sense be called gods because of their roles as representatives of God, how much more should that title apply to me? Because as my works have proved, I'm the son of God, fully divine. And that really is the final straw. That is too much for them. And they cannot restrain themselves any longer. And they physically try and grab him to finish him off there and then. Verse 39. And he slips away. And did he slip away miraculously? Did he just sort of walk through them or disappear and reappear 50 yards away? Or, or did, was there some pillars and some supporters and he could kind of quickly dodge and duck and run? We don't know. But his time isn't quite yet. So he doesn't let them kill him quite yet. And then we get the postscript in 40 to 42. And it's there to challenge us about our response to Jesus, like I said at the beginning. Where do we stand? Verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true. And, and there's the picture of that faithful witness I was saying that we have to have because of the glorious truth of election, predestination. John's faithful witness is bearing fruit because the people he was witnessing to, it turns out they had been chosen. And, and John's faithful witness had been even at the cost of his own death earlier. And are we faithfully witnessing? And then verse 42, 
and many believed in him there. And that's the final question that goes for all of us. Are we, number one, are we faithfully witnessing, like John's example, but number two, are we believing ourselves? And one way to gauge the strength and the health and the, and the authenticity of my belief in Jesus is the level of peace and joy that comes from it. If I have no peace and no joy, either I don't really believe in Jesus or I do, but my belief is really unhealthy and weak and I need to be pray about that and bolster it and get more fellowship, do more Bible study, worship more, you know. Or, um, yeah, one of those two things. Because a healthy, strong belief in Jesus will issue in peace and joy because he's the Christ, the Son of God. He has us in his hands. And just to illustrate that, I want to finish now with the story of um, one of Japan's most notorious murderers, um, Tokichi Ishii. Um, he was hanged in Tokyo for murder in 1918. Um, by then, he'd been to prison over 20 times, and he was famous for his cruelty. And one time, after attacking a prison guard, he was gagged and tied up and suspended so that his toes barely touched the ground. Still, he defiantly refused to show any contrition, any sorrow whatsoever. He was a beast. Well, just before he was sentenced to death, <clears throat> he received in the mail a New Testament from two missionaries, a Miss West and a Miss MacDonald. And uh, Miss West then visited him, after which he began to read the account of Jesus' trial and execution. His own was coming. He was kind of curious about this other guy called Jesus who had a similar experience. He started to read uh, the account of Jesus' trial and execution. And one sentence in particular that you will recognize got under his skin, where Jesus says, as they're impaling his limbs to the crossbeam of his execution instrument, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it changed this, um, this, this man's life. And he wrote later, I stopped. I was stabbed to the heart as if by a five-inch nail. What did the verse reveal to me? Shall I call it the love of Christ? I do not know what to call it. I only know that with an unspeakably grateful heart, I believed. Well, uh, Ishii was duly sentenced to death. He accepted it as fair and deserved. Uh, Miss West again visited him and shared with him, soon before his execution, words from 2 Corinthians 6. And then he, he later wrote this in his journal. People will say that I must have a very sorrowful heart because I'm daily awaiting the execution of the death sentence. That is not the case. I feel neither sorrow nor distress nor any pain. Locked up in a prison cell, six foot by nine in size, I'm infinitely happier than I was in the days of my sinning when I did not know God. Perhaps in the future, someone in the world may hear that the most desperate villain that ever lived repented of his sins and was saved by the power of Christ and so may come to repent also. If only he could like, see us all here this morning. Well, I guess we will get to meet him one day. And then his final words spoken as he stood on the scaffold just before he was hung were these. My soul, purified, today returns to the city of God. Let's pray. And, and can we stand to pray? Why don't we all stand? And we'll have a moment, and then I'd love anyone who feels led just to pray up. Anyone who wants to respond and encourage all of us by lifting your voice in response to these truths, please pray up.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're the Christ. Thank you that you're the Son of God. Thank you that you're fully divine. No one can pluck us out of your hand. And thank you that your Father has done the miracle to open our eyes to this truth that will reassure us and be evidence of the fact that you chose us from before the foundation of the world. We will be literally forever grateful and, and worshipful and humble and joyful because of that. Amen.